starting at Mark 1540 through chapter 16, verse 8. It says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And as he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Mark began his gospel with that confident declaration. In essence saying what is about to follow is the good news of Jesus Christ who is the only begotten Son of God. This is Jesus' story. This is the story of the Son of God. But the question arises at the very beginning by Mark's choice of word, gospel, what is it about what is about to follow that makes this good news? That's what the word gospel means. It's the declaration of good news. So what's good about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's good about what we have spent the last year in the life of this church working systematically through as we've gone from chapter 1 now to chapter 16 of Mark's gospel? Is it his miracles? Is that what what makes the good news so good? Well, no, because others have performed miracles and there are no gospels proclaiming their deeds. There's no gospel of Paul, for instance. Is it his message? Again, I would say no, because others came proclaiming the kingdom of God and there are no gospels relating their stories. Is it his impeccable moral character? No, because there have been others of high moral fiber whose lives are not immortalized with a gospel. Is it his death? Certainly not, because how can death in and of itself, understood apart from a resurrection, be considered good news? No, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us exactly what it is that makes the story of Jesus a gospel, a declaration of good news. It is his resurrection on the third day. It is his triumph over the enemy of death. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he reminded them of the gospel which he had preached to them, the gospel which they had received, the gospel in which they stood, and the gospel by which they were being saved if they would continue in their faith unless they had believed in vain. And then he goes on to describe for them what is this gospel that he preached to them. He says it's the same gospel that he also received, which he delivered to them as of first importance. In other words, of all the things that I taught you while I was in Corinth with you, this was the foundation. This was the fundamental. Namely, that Christ has died for your sins and that he was buried And that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was seen by many witnesses. See, the foundational core of the gospel is not the miracles of Jesus. It's not the message of Jesus. It's not the morality of Jesus. Those are all important components of the gospel message. But they are not the core of the gospel. It's not even the death of Jesus understood apart from his resurrection, which is why it's so concerning to me that so often our evangelistic presentations center upon the death of Christ and give nothing but a passing reference to his resurrection. Paul says if the death of Jesus is all we have, we're still in our sins and we are of all men most to be pitied. 
The first disciples, when they were sent forth after the resurrection of Jesus, they thought of themselves primarily as witnesses, not of his death, but of his resurrection. They went throughout the world declaring not merely, not only that Jesus has died, but that he is risen and he is alive and he is Lord of all. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the glue that holds the gospel together. It is what makes the news Good news. Paul makes it abundantly clear in that second passage I quoted from 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 19, where he says that if Christ has not been raised, just think about this, even if he had died, if he had not been raised, we are still in our sins. The dead who have gone before us are still dead. And we are of all men most to be pitied if Jesus Christ is still in that tomb. No, the death of Jesus by itself is not the core of the gospel. The core of the Christian gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the message that we take to Haiti. That's the message that we take to Cuba. That Jesus Christ, who was crucified, is alive forevermore, and that he is Lord of all. And that he commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel of Christ. It is because of Jesus' resurrection that his miracles have meaning. Every single person whom Jesus healed eventually died again. Even Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, died again. But when Jesus rose from the dead, in light of his resurrection, all of those miracles become more than mere temporary fixes upon a broken, cursed world. They become foretastes of a new creation where there will no longer be any mourning or sickness or crying or suffering or pain or death. It is because of Jesus' resurrection that his message has saving power. Because it proclaims an everlasting kingdom which people may enter and never die. It is because of Jesus' resurrection that his morality, namely his righteousness under the law, brings hope to us rather than despair. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, the news of his perfect, obedient life would merely be for us an impossible standard that we could never hope to attain because we share in this sin-cursed nature that is bent towards iniquity. But because of the resurrection, now we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And it is because of his resurrection that his death brings justification to sinners. Romans 4.25, because by his resurrection, God declared in the sight of all men that the price for our sin has been paid, that full atonement has been rendered, and that free justification is now available to all who have faith in Jesus. But, on the other hand, says Paul, if Christ has not been raised, none of those things are true. We are still in our sins And there is no reason to hope that Christ's death has sufficiently atoned for any one of them. The resurrection of Jesus is the central declaration of the gospel. If there is no resurrection, indeed there is 
no gospel. And that is the reason why Paul goes on to mention the various resurrection appearances of Christ as part of the gospel proclamation. When he says, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, he doesn't give just three components of the gospel. He gives four. That Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was seen. That's why Paul goes on to mention these various resurrection appearances as part of that proclamation because our faith rests not as the liberal Protestants a century ago would have had us believe on a figurative resurrection in which the spirit of Christ was raised while his body remained and rotted in the grave. Paul says, no, I won't have any of that nonsense, which by the way was available in his own day as well through the various Gnostic heresies which assaulted the church. No, he proclaims that the body of Jesus, the same body which died, was the very same body that arose and walked out of the tomb. And that bodily resurrection of Christ forms the bedrock of our hope. Jesus was raised from the dead. How do we know? He appeared. There were witnesses, hundreds of them, who saw the empty tomb, who touched his body, who ate with him, and many of whom gave their lives for their testimony to the risen Lord Jesus. Thematically, it would have made a great deal of sense for Mark to end his gospel at verse 39 of chapter 15 with the centurion looking up at the dead body of Christ upon the cross and declaring, truly, this was the Son of God. That would have made a nice, tidy bookend to his gospel. Mark's gospel could have begun, 1-1, and ended, 1539, with the declaration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as proven by his miracles, his message, his morality, and his death. The problem is, none of those things prove he's the Son of God. That's why theologically, Mark could not end his gospel at verse 39 with a dead Messiah hanging on a dead tree, the leader of a dead movement. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. Our faith is futile, we are still in our sins, our hope is misplaced, and we are of all men most to be pitied. Just think about it. After the death of Jesus, where were all of his followers? Were they rejoicing in the triumph of the Son of God after his triumphant death? No. Where were the disciples on Saturday? Were they gathered in prayer, eagerly awaiting their anticipated resurrection of their master? No, they were hunkered down in hiding, devastated by guilt, shame, hopelessness, and despair. That's what a gospel with no resurrection leaves you. What about the women? Come Sunday morning, they were headed to the tomb. Why? To greet the risen Lord as he emerged? No. They're carrying spices because they're intending to anoint his body, that is his dead body, for the burial and to weep and mourn over his death. There was no expectation of Jesus' resurrection as evidenced by the fact that they brought these spices to anoint his body and wondered aloud who was going to roll away the stone from the tomb. What is this 
but a picture of a futile, hopeless, pitiful faith which has no resurrection. The disciples needed the resurrection of Jesus, and so do we. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not some optional addendum to the gospel. The resurrection of Christ is the gospel. I want you to ponder, just for a second, the way that you share the gospel. Is your gospel presentation leading up to the triumph of his resurrection, or does it terminate upon his death? If so, you're only giving people half the good news. And Paul would say the news that you're giving them isn't even that good if Christ is not alive. Because Jesus is alive, his miracles, his message, his morality, and his death all have eternal significance. His death has saving power if Jesus is alive. If Jesus is alive, he lives now and forevermore to send forth the Spirit to gather his elect from every nation. It's only because Jesus is alive that missions has any warrant and any hope of success because the ascended Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and is calling his own to himself. Because Jesus is alive, he stands at the right hand of the Father and is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Because Jesus is alive, Mark can rightly say at the beginning of his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. Because the story is ongoing as year after year, generation after generation, century after century, Jesus continues to save sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and to gather them into his church over which he reigns as the ascended sovereign Lord and from which he shall return to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. So I ask you, how else could Mark have ended his gospel but with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And how else could we end our year-long study of this gospel but with the triumphant heralding that Jesus is alive? And how else could you respond to this news this morning but with reverent worship and obedient faith? He is alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical event that can no more be ignored than you can ignore a fire alarm blaring over your head. Paul said that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, our faith is futile, we are still in our sins, the dead are still dead, and we are of all men most to be pitied. But in the very next verse, he confidently asserts, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is risen, and therefore faith in Christ is not futile, it is essential. Jesus is risen, and therefore we are not in our sins. We are justified and forgiven. Jesus is risen, and therefore the dead have not perished. They are alive, and they await the resurrection on the last day. Jesus is alive, and therefore we are not to be pitied, but we are of all men most to be blessed. So as we conclude this study of Mark's gospel, I'm going to invite you to reckon 
with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and its implications on your life. This sermon is not about these 45 minutes only. It's about a culmination of a year in the Gospel of Mark. You cannot ignore what we have studied. You cannot ignore what we're going to look at today. 2,000 years ago, a Galilean carpenter turned miracle-working prophet, a man who proclaimed the kingdom of God and had the audacity to declare himself to be the door of that kingdom, predicted his own death and resurrection, and furthermore, attributed to his death redemptive significance. He then died just as he said, and on the third day, he was raised just as he said. Surely that demands our attention. Surely that demands our careful investigation. Surely that demands our faith and our repentance and our obedience and our worship and our very lives. This crucified and risen Jesus is worth giving everything for. It is good news that demands a response. Mark's purpose in writing this gospel was twofold. First, he wrote in order to present evidence that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. He wrote this gospel to convince you of something, namely the identity of this Jewish prophet from Galilee. That's why he began the gospel with his own confession the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why he concludes the gospel with the confession of the Roman centurion. Truly this man was the Son of God. And halfway between those two confessions, he includes Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And everything in this gospel, his miracles, his message, his teaching, his death, and especially his resurrection, is designed to demonstrate that those confessions are true and to invite us to confess the same. But he has a second purpose. Not only did he write his gospel to identify Jesus as the Son of God, He also wrote his gospel to call us to a wholehearted faith in Jesus as the Son of God. A faith that envelops our whole lives, that engages our entire affections and emotions and all of our intelligence and demands from us our very lives. He has written his gospel to demonstrate and call forth a true and authentic faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So he wrote his gospel to answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ by faith? So what I want to do is we recap this year in the Gospel of Mark. I want you to turn back to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to take a, a 32,000-foot overview of the Gospel of Mark, and I'm just going to remind you in two minutes of what it means to follow Jesus according to the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.15, following Jesus means repenting and believing the Gospel. Mark 1.17, Following Jesus means becoming a fisher of men. Mark 2.17, following Jesus means knowing yourself to be sick and in need of the physician. 
Mark 3.35, following Jesus means doing the will of God and thereby being closer to him than his own biological mother and brothers. Mark 4.20, following Jesus means bearing fruit, fruit that remains, 30, 60, 100 fold. Mark 4.40, following Jesus means not fearing the storms of life because you know that Jesus is bigger than the storms. He is sovereign over the storms. Mark 7.15, following Jesus means understanding that the cleansing we need is not merely external. We are not those who just clean the outside of the dish. We need a deep internal renewal and regeneration. Mark 7.28, following Jesus means clinging to Christ as your only hope until you receive the grace that you need as demonstrated by the Syrophoenician woman Syrophoenician woman and her tenacious faith in Christ. Mark 8.34, following Jesus means denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Mark 9.42, it means cutting off your hand and foot and gouging out your eye in the battle against sin. Mark 10.15, it means receiving the kingdom of God like a little child. Mark 10.21, following Jesus means selling all of your treasures because you have found a greater treasure in Christ. Mark 10.43, following Jesus means becoming the servant of all. Mark 11.23, it means bearing the fruit of faithful prayer and a forgiving spirit. Mark 12.17, following Jesus means rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Mark 12, 29, following Jesus means loving God and loving your neighbor. Mark 12, 44, following Jesus means giving to God everything we have than merely giving out of our abundance. In other words, following him like the widow who gave her only might. Mark 13, following Jesus means staying awake, persevering through this age of tribulation. Mark 14, 6, Following Jesus means loving Jesus with an extravagant affection, just like Mary of Bethany who broke open the expensive vile perfume and anointed Jesus beforehand for his burial. Mark 14.38, following Jesus means watching and praying that you may not fall into temptation like Jesus did, like Peter did not. Ultimately, as we saw last week, following Jesus means seeing in the cross of Christ the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. This morning, I'm going to invite you one more time to see how Mark accomplishes these twin purposes as we look at the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to see in his resurrection the preeminent proof that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And we're going to see once more in the examples of Joseph, the women, and finally Peter and the rest of the disciples, what it means to follow Jesus with a true and authentic faith. So number one, what does it mean to follow Christ in true faith? It means having a faith that is unashamed. This is evident in the account of Joseph of Arimathea who requested and received from Pilate the body of Jesus for burial. We'll begin with verse 42. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Burial was an important rite in the Jewish culture. Although the Romans were in the habit of leaving their crucified victims up on the cross until they either decayed or were eaten by scavengers, the Jews believed that even their enemies deserved a proper burial. This probably arose from Deuteronomy 21-23, which dictates that a criminal who is put to death, probably by stoning, should be hung on a tree as a sign to the covenant community that that person died under the wrath and the curse of God. But then before sunset, God commanded that their bodies should be taken down and buried, lest the land be defiled. So in Judea, it would be common for them not to leave bodies on the crosses overnight. A proper Jewish burial involved several things. It involved, number one, the washing of the body of all of the blood and the gore, wrapping it in clean white linen and spices, which was to counteract the stench of decay, and placing it in a tomb. Now, we think, although we're not certain, that we know where this tomb was. It's called the Garden Tomb. You can go to it in Israel. And it's traditionally identified as the one that belonged to Jesus. It is located in an abandoned rock quarry where stonecutters had cut back into the hillside, which left a, a rugged rock bluff in which tombs were cut, and they've unearthed a number of these tombs over the centuries. A typical Jewish tomb actually had two rooms. First, there was a, an antechamber or an opening chamber, and at the back of this would be a, a small doorway that led into the actual burial chamber, which was usually six feet by nine feet, and it would have shelf-like niches carved into the rock on either side where the bodies would be laid. After decomposition had taken place, the bones would then be removed. They'd be put in a small box called an ossuary, and it would be stored in the chamber. Um, in this way, a tomb could contain the remains of many, many generations of a family. So you'd walk in, and there would be multiple boxes, multiple ossuaries located throughout this burial chamber. The entrance to the burial chamber would be sealed by a heavy disc-shaped stone that was rolled in channels across the entrance in order to keep animals and grave robbers out and keep the stench of decay in. Now, Mark doesn't tell us much of anything about Joseph except who he was. Mark says he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin and where he was from. He was from the town of Arimathea, which is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and that he was a faithful Old Covenant Jew. Uh, that's Mark's, Mark says that by telling us that he was looking for the kingdom of God, which is kind of gospel code language for a, an old covenant believer. But even with what little Mark tells us, 
there's enough in these brief verses to elicit from his audience a collective gasp when they hear that he is a member of the Sanhedrin, the very same ruling body that had set themselves in mortal opposition to Jesus and were primarily responsible for his murder. And so the fact that a member of the Sanhedrin would perform this this act of service and devotion to Christ is, by this point in the gospel, just absolutely stunning. And Mark tells us that it took courage to do so. He says, Joseph took courage and went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. I mean, of course this took an act of courage. Joseph was putting his reputation, his position, and perhaps even his life on the line by publicly showing sympathy for this man who had just 24 hours earlier, not even that long, been condemned by the Sanhedrin as a false prophet and a blasphemer, and just a few hours earlier had been condemned by Pilate of high treason and deserving of death. But it's actually John who adds the significant color to the story of Joseph. And so I want us to turn to John's gospel Because John highlights exactly what kind of courage it took for Joseph to perform this act of devotion to Jesus. In John chapter 19, in verse 38, John says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, all right, he's a follower of Christ, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. All right, so John tells us that it's not only Joseph, but Nicodemus, who we had met earlier in John chapter 3. Both of them are members of the Sanhedrin. Both of them are secret disciples of Jesus for fear of the Jews. Well, what are they afraid of? It doesn't take a lot of imagination. John, in fact, makes it explicit for us. Back in John chapter 12, verse 42, he says this, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue and then look at John's stinging condemnation of secret discipleship. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And there it is. That's the point we need to see about Joseph this morning in order to understand how he took courage and what it meant for him to do so. So let's put together everything we know about Joseph, and then I'm going to bring this home. Joseph was, as well as Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jews. It was a position of great wealth and power and influence and prestige. It was the pinnacle of Israelite Judaism. Nevertheless, Joseph was a faithful Jew. He had a real heart religion. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke says that he was a good and righteous man and that he had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision and action. Matthew tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus and John says that he was a secret one for fear of the Jews. 
And then John tells us that his fear was caused by the fact that the Pharisees had ordered every disciple of Jesus to be excommunicated from the synagogue. And so we get this picture of Joseph emerging of a man who has a real heart faith. He's looking for the fulfillment of the old covenant prophets, the old covenant promises. He's looking for the kingdom of God. And here comes Jesus, declaring himself to be the Messiah, performing all of these miraculous signs, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And Joseph believes. But there's a battle that rages within him. And you can imagine this battle waning for a little bit while Jesus was up in Galilee and ministering other places. But then every time he comes back to Jerusalem, there it is, this this beating conviction going on inside his heart to confess Christ, to, to step forward and declare himself a public follower of Jesus. But he would ignore the conviction. He would ignore it. He would push it away. He would sink into the background. Jesus would go back to Galilee. Joseph would feel all right again for a time. Next feast comes around. Jesus comes back to Jerusalem, and there it is. Pretty much the same thing some of you are feeling because you're afraid to declare yourself a follower of Christ and to be baptized, for instance. Or maybe to confess that you've never actually been a believer in Jesus and to declare that now you are really and truly a born-again follower of Christ. Listen to me and listen to Mark and learn from the lesson of Joseph. There is no such thing as a secret disciple. It's impossible. Sooner or later, God will call you out and he will put circumstances in your life that will force you to choose your path. Either you're with Jesus or you're against Jesus. Either you'll confess Jesus or you'll deny Jesus. That time had come for Joseph and that time has come for some of you. If you confess him before men, he'll confess you before his father who is in heaven. But if you deny him before men, he will deny you before his father who is in heaven. Joseph serves as the preeminent example in Mark's gospel of an unashamed faith. He is the living, breathing illustration of Jesus' words back in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I can imagine those words burning in Joseph's heart day after day after day as Jesus taught in the temple and as the Sanhedrin schemed at night. But by confessing Christ openly, asking Pilate for his body, publicly going, publicly requesting the body, publicly taking it down from the cross, publicly burying it. Joseph made sure that Jesus would not be ashamed of him when the day of judgment came. So what about you? 
Is your faith in Christ an unashamed faith? Have you confessed Jesus openly before your family, before your friends, before your colleagues? Have you confessed that you're a follower of Jesus, that your life is commanded by Christ, who is the captain of your soul, that it is directed by his authoritative word? Or are you trying to become a secret disciple because you love the praise of men more than you love the praise of God? What would it look like for you to live with an unashamed faith? I want you to ask yourself that question. It's not rhetorical. It's eternal. What would it look like for you to confess Christ openly, publicly? What would it look like for you to live day in and day out with an unashamed faith? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is like a cosmic line in the sand calling everyone to make their choice. If you really believe that Christ is risen from the dead, then how can you continue to live as if he were not? In the end, there is no such thing as a secret disciple because sooner or later, you're going to have to make your choice between confessing him and living an unashamed life of faith or denying him, hiding in the background and hearing those fearful words from God on the last day, I'm sorry, your faith was not real because it did not speak. True faith, authentic faith, saving faith is an unashamed faith, like the faith of Joseph. Secondly, True faith is an affectionate faith. The quality of true faith as an affectionate faith is demonstrated by the women who went to the cross on Good Friday and then to the tomb on Sunday morning. So we're going to jump back to verses 40 to 41, skip ahead to verse 47, and then read down to verse 6 of chapter 16. So verse 40. There, in other words, at Golgotha, were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. It's amazing. Even when all of the disciples had fallen away, the women were there with Jesus to the end. While all of the disciples are cowering behind the closed doors in fear, the women are headed to the tomb to show their affection and devotion to their fallen Lord. Now, it's clear that they did not have an eager expectation of seeing Jesus alive. 
Otherwise, they would not have brought brought spices to anoint his body for the burial. They wouldn't have wondered who was going to roll away the stone from the tomb, but at least they were there. Their affection for Jesus was deep, and it was real, and it was lasting, even though all hope appeared to be lost. And I can't help but wonder if this is why they were granted the privilege of being the first witnesses of the resurrection, because they loved Jesus so much, and Jesus loves to be loved. So who are these women? In verse 40, Mark identifies three. He says, first, there is Mary Magdalene, of whom there's nothing else written in Scripture except that she was from the town of Magdala on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that Jesus had once driven out from her seven demons. Uh, She became known later in the Middle Ages, erroneously so, as a prostitute. There's no warrant for that in the biblical text. There's also Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, who is possibly, though not certainly, also Mary, the mother of Jesus. He had brothers named James and Joseph. Um, That she's not simply called Jesus' mother is odd, but it's Maybe owing to the fact that throughout Mark, uh, Mark tends to distance Jesus from his um, biological family for theological purposes. And then finally, there's Salome, who is the wife of Zebedee and is the mother of Jesus' disciples, James and John. In verse 47, it's the two Marys who observe the location of Jesus' tomb. And then in verse 1, it's all three women who go early Sunday morning to the tomb to anoint the body. What they found there when they arrived stopped them dead in their tracks. The stone was already removed from the tomb. How, Mark does not tell us, but Matthew does. Matthew says there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the tomb and sat on it. This is the same angel that Mark says is a young man who announced to the women that Jesus was not there but had risen from the dead. And this whole scene is too much for the women to take in. The heart-breaking sorrow that had consumed them since Friday, the confusion of how their Messiah could die, what that meant for the kingdom of God, their fear of what might happen to them for being associated with Jesus, and now the sudden appearance of an angel, it has them utterly terrified. Matthew writes, that the angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Imagine coming upon that scene. It was too much for these women to bear. That seems to be why when the angel tells them to go and tell the disciples, Mark says in verse 8, they went out and fled from the tomb, and for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Of course they were afraid. You'd be afraid too if you saw an angel. They were trembling. They were astonished. Literally, the Greek word is ecstatic. They left the tomb literally out of their minds. They weren't thinking rationally. They were bewildered, amazed, afraid. And, Matthew 28, 8, there was rising within their hearts an emerging joy. As the truth of the resurrection began to dawn upon their minds and their hearts. Their faith was not merely intellectual. It was deeply emotional, as is all true faith. 
your emotions are unique to your own unique personality. And not everyone is effusive in the display of their affections. That's okay. But every one of you are emotional beings. And you cannot divorce your intelligence from your affections. You cannot divorce your faith from your feelings. True faith feels affection for Jesus. True faith loves Jesus. True faith rejoices in Jesus. True faith fears Jesus. True faith stands in awe of Jesus. So the second question I would ask you this morning, and the aim of discerning whether or not you have true biblical faith is, does the risen Christ command your affections? You love Him. Do you rejoice in Him? Do you treasure Him? There is one further point that needs to be made, one loose end in Mark's gospel that needs to be tied up, and it's the question of the disciples. The last we saw them, they had all fallen away in Mark 14, 27. Okay, what about Peter? Peter? What happened to Peter when he had denied Christ three times at the end of Mark 14? What became of the stalwart disciples of Jesus who said they would all follow Jesus even to the end? And the reason why that's an important question to ask is because we are not unlike them. We are faith. Less at times, weak in faith at our best, stumbling, staggering, fearful, tempted. We are Peter. We are James and John and Andrew and Matthew and Thomas. We are those disciples. And so is there any hope for people like us, for failures, for the faithless. Indeed there is, and it's found in verse 7, and I don't want you to miss it. The angel instructs the women at the tomb, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Women, Go tell the disciples who abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. Go tell his disciples who fled from the garden at his arrest in order to save their own skin. Go tell Peter who denied three times that he even knew Jesus the last time with oaths and curses. Go tell them that Jesus is alive and that he is coming for them and that he is not coming in wrath, but he is coming in mercy and grace. He is coming to forgive. He is coming to restore. He is coming to renew. He is coming to commission them for the apostolic ministry. What astounding hope there is in verse 7 of Mark chapter 16. 
What astounding hope there is for those of us who have failed to confess Christ. What astounding hope there is for those of us who have tried and failed and tried and failed and find ourselves more like the secret disciples, the fearful disciples, hiding in a corner, cowering from the world. What amazing, astounding hope there is because Jesus is risen from the dead. Because of the resurrection of Christ, he has conquered death and the grave. Therefore, the gospel says, go and tell the disciples and Tim. Go and tell the disciples and Scott. Go and tell the disciples and Rich. Go and tell the disciples and fill in your name. Go and tell them that they are not condemned. They are not cast away. They are not finished. That their failure and their faithlessness will not have the last word. That there is mercy and grace and forgiveness and restoration and renewal and ministry for all those who have failed Jesus. There is hope. He is alive. Can you see, can you taste, can you feel the good news of the resurrection of Christ? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring any charge against one of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who is raised. Who is seated at the right hand of God. Who always makes intercession for us. Go and tell the disciples. Disciples and Peter. What a way to end the gospel. What a way to conclude the story of the Son of God. True faith is, in the final analysis, a forgiven faith. It is a faith that knows the peace and joy of forgiveness from the risen Christ. It is a faith that makes that forgiveness the foundation of life moving forward. It is a faith that derives from that forgiveness the strength and the perseverance needed to confess Christ the next time one of those opportunities arises, even unto death, just as the disciples and Peter joyfully did in the end. Christ died and rose again in order that grace may have the last word in the life of sinners who trust him. So I would ask you one final question. Do you know the forgiveness of the crucified and risen Son of God? Have you called upon him for mercy and grace to cleanse you of your sins? Have you gone to him with all of your failures and all of your iniquities and all of your defilements? Have you brought them to the feet of the risen Christ and laid them there so that he may speak peace to you and remove your guilt and remove your iniquity and clothe your nakedness in the robes of his righteousness that you may be accepted in the courts of his Father? There is no sin that he cannot forgive. There is no sinner too far gone. There is no repentance that he turns away. Go and tell the disciples and Peter and all of you here at First Baptist Nixa this morning, come to the crucified and risen Son of God where there is mercy and grace in abundance and where forgiveness is abundant and free.